chapter 4, and uh, you can grab a Bible there in the seat back in front of you or pull out your smartphone and you can just Google. Uh, but John is, uh, you'll find it over in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. It's the fourth book that you'll find there in the New Testament. As I, I want to talk about the idea of redeeming glory this morning from the, uh, the, the last half of John chapter 5. You know, people by nature are, uh, as we know, we are curious. We are searchers. We're looking for stuff. I, I think that it's, uh, it's part of the reason why, you know, we have people that are scientists and zoologists and biologists and marine biologists uh, that, that they, they want to know more stuff. And then there's the rest of us normal people, uh, and that is uh, we find all sorts of things to fill our time and hobbies and things like that. And some of our hobbies are, are quiet and serene, like uh, reading or knitting. And then others of them are incredibly loud and thrill-seeking, like riding a motorcycle or kite surfing. Uh, but everybody's looking for something that will fill whatever kind of void that is in, in, their, in their lives. And, and it's one of the reasons why we send out mission teams. You know, right now we've got six of our church members that are in Miami with our partner church, City Church, that is right down there in the downtown district of Miami. Uh, uh, Pastor John has got a number of our members down there, and, and yesterday they spent time out walking on the Miracle Mile, just handing out invitations, engaging with, you know, conversations with people and inviting them to be a part of a, of a new church plant in that uh, part of town. And they spent some time at the uh, Florida Baptist Children's Home doing ministry with the kids, and, and this morning they're worshiping at one of the other partner churches that's also helping this church plant get up and running. And, and, and then I was just in Brazil, uh, where I was in big mega cities of Brazil preaching in, in large churches, and it was everything from uh, quiet, kind of docile, almost like Bible churches to like full tilt, uh, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself, Pentecostal churches. Um, and uh, but I I'm I'm Baptist, but I pretended, and um, and and it doesn't matter whether it is that we go to on a mission trip to a country like Jordan, or we go to a city like Miami, or you just walk across the street to your neighbor. Everybody is looking for something to fill up that place in their life where they feel like there's something missing. There's this void. There was a, a great philosopher who once said that each man is born with a God-shaped void that only Christ can fill. It's like a puzzle piece. There's no other piece uh, that'll fit right there, uh, nothing else that will fully fill it up except for Christ. And there is this desire in our life to find some level of satisfaction. I think that there is a, a way that we can understand glory in that we are looking for something to glory in, something that is satisfactory. Here in John chapter 5, uh, Jesus uh, has healed someone at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, the people who were really, really religious didn't like the fact that he had healed this guy because he had done it on the Sabbath. He had told the guy who was paralyzed, pick up your mat and go walk away. That was considered work and that was bad. Uh, and then they're mad at Jesus because he did a miracle on the Sabbath and apparently that was bad even though he had healed a paralyzed man. And so Jesus begins to try to help them to understand uh, how is it that they have gone wrong in their, in their comprehension of what the kingdom of God is all about. And, and so let me pick up here in verse 24 as he is now uh, trying to guide these uber-religious people toward the truth. He says, Truly, 
I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself, and he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of, who, of him who sent me. Now, let me go ahead and read on through the end of the chapter. If I testify about myself, Jesus is saying, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You've not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Yes. Wow. This is um, one of the places that there's part of me that wishes I could rewind the tape back to like last October when I was planning all of my preaching through the Gospel of John. I've told a few of you this as I have uh, slated out how it is I'm going to preach through the Gospel of John. When I first outlined the entire Gospel, it was well over 120 different sermons that you were going to get from the Gospel of John. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, That's that's why I scaled it back, because that would almost… It's like, oh, are we ever going to get out of John, Pastor? Um, this is one of those passages where there are individual verses here, like verse 30. 
I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. There's actually four sermons in that one verse. That, um, but in, in order for us to try to navigate through this storyline of the, of the life of Jesus, I wanted to put these big passages together so that you could see how it is that these large themes fit together in Jesus' teaching, in His life, in His work, and in His resurrection power. Because this passage, as he is answering those who are mad that he has done a work of the kingdom of God, he has healed a paralyzed man, and he has done it on on the Sabbath, on the day of rest, they're mad about the wrong things. I mean, people, uh, there are good things to be mad about. All right, there are things that we should be, as, as members of the kingdom of God, that we should absolutely be belligerent about. We should be mad about what sin does to a person's life. We should be mad about what hurt and pain and turmoil, how it can draw a person away from faith and hope. We should be mad about those things. These guys are mad that Jesus did a good thing on the Sabbath and somehow broke their rules and regulations. And so Jesus is trying to reintroduce them. He is trying to redeem the idea of glory for them so that they will understand that they're missing the point. You remember several weeks ago I preached a message about adventures and missing the point. This is another place where they're missing the point. Uh, They've got a philosophy that they are locked into that is causing them to miss the very kingdom of God. And in this passage, let me give to you three different concepts that I think that, that Jesus is laying out before us that will help us to redeem the idea of what is it that we should glory in? What is it that should, that should you know, win our praise and our adoration? The first is very evident in verses 25 through 29, and that is resurrection power. This is where the glory of God gets put on display in an eternal apocalyptic kind of sense. In an, in a, and I don't want you to just think in, a, in just a sense of judgment because Jesus hands to us both sides of what the resurrection power does. It is the power that, that the Father has that He gives to the Son, and the Son has the right, as it says there in verse 27, to pass judgment. And he says, and don't be amazed by this. He says, don't get shocked at this. This is not the thing that should, that you should be, oh my goodness, I can't believe, you know, that God has the power of judgment, that he might have given that to his son. He said, don't be amazed at this. You've been waiting for the Savior. You've been waiting for the Messiah. Of course, I come with the power to be able to say what is righteous and what is not righteous, what is right and what is wrong. And he says, and in the end, everybody is going to be resurrected. You're going to be resurrected to eternal life, or you're going to be resurrected to eternal death. Now, I know it's an odd concept and kind of word choices for us to, to think about being resurrected to eternal death, but there is, a, there's a, there is the reminder here that, that all of us have a soul that lasts forever. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great uh, philosopher, said, you are, you are not a, a person who has a soul, you are a soul that has a body. Uh, that's a paraphrase of something that Lewis said uh, much more smartly than my Alabama brain can uh, comprehend. There's no need to laugh. There's no need to laugh. I do the best I can with what I got. And, and this resurrection power Jesus is pointing out that, that there are going to be people who are going to be raised to life and people who are going to be raised to condemnation. And, and, and so, what is it that you want to glory in? When I was uh, 
growing up in Alabama, I mean, there was a, a very specific thing that you were supposed to glory in. It was either Alabama football or Auburn football. I mean, I mean there, there was a very clear choice about this, about what it is that you were supposed to be obsessed with. And it's all the way to the point that the, to the, the first time, where is, where is Tim Newby? Tim, I know you're in here. There you are, Tim. All right. Tim was the chairman of the search committee that interviewed me when you, you guys remember that. So send him the nasty letter. Stop sending them to me. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Kidding. Don't send them to Tim. Keep sending them to me. Tim, the, the very first church that uh, called me to be the pastor, uh, they interviewed Angie and I together, much like you guys did. And I remember sitting in that interview, and it was in this small town in Alabama, a small rural town. And the, the guy who was the chairman of the committee looked over at Angie who grew up in the Atlanta, Georgia area and attended the University of Georgia. And he said to her, he said, well, well Miss Angie, because uh, it was a small town in Alabama and she was 24 years old, but he still said Miss Angie. Um, he said, we, we only have two questions for you. And she said, well, all right. Uh, you know Angie, she's just as good as gold and the, the most perfect person. I mean, she's Mary Poppins. She's practically perfect in every way. And... Um, and, and, and so she, he said, he said, we just have two questions for you. He said, uh, number one, do you play the piano? Why do they ask pastor's wives that? I, I don't understand. I, right? Right? Okay. So they said, do you play the piano? To which Angie said, no, I don't. And then they said, well, we've got one other question for you. And she said, well, okay. She, and he said, um, are you an Auburn fan or an Alabama fan? And, and so we were like, Oh, this is, we've moved to the joke section of the interview. And so she said, well, I'm, I'm a Georgia fan. He said, no, 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 no. He said, I, I, we need to know, like, are you an Auburn fan or an Alabama fan? Like, he was deadly serious. And she was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a Georgia fan. And he said, oh, well, you don't count. I was like, she counts? She counts more than all you people? Because... All year long in the state of Alabama, this is what we talk about. This is what we talk about all year long, right, John Little? Right, all right. This is, apparently, this is the interactive portion of the service. Um, it's what we, uh, because people find their glory in these things of the earth. People, we find our fulfillment in these things of the earth. We find all of our meaning in these things of the earth. Remember last year when we had my British friend, Dennis Pethers, came and preached uh, on a particular Sunday? Uh, Dennis tells the story that he had saved up enough money one time to go to, uh, to uh, Liverpool, England. He grew up in London. Liverpool was a couple hours away in order to go to a football match. Now, like, not like one of our football matches. I mean, like the communist kickball kind of football matches. And... Um, it, don't worry, it'll circle back around. It'll be funny to you later. Um, wow, I was, in, I was in Brazil for way too long. And, um, and so Dennis had saved up his money, and he went to go see his favorite team plays, the Everton Football Club. And it's this huge stadium with all these wild Brits that are watching this game. And he said he remembered taking an American friend with him. And obviously, we don't, all of us don't understand the rabid nature of, of being a fan of, of, of soccer, uh, as we call it, that, that the rest of the world calls football. And he said he introduced his, his American friend to a guy that was just sitting in a pub, and they were all there. They were there hours early. We call that tailgating. They call it something very different. And, um, 
and he introduced this guy in this pub to him, and the, and the American friend asked him, you know, why is it that you guys get so excited about this game? And the guy explained to him how he was a plumber and how all week long all he does is he just puts in pipes and he puts in fixtures and he puts in bathrooms and he fixes this stuff and he fixes this other stuff and he works for other people and he works for other people and he works for other people and that there's this one time of the week where Everton football becomes everything to him. It becomes everything to me, he said when I can just cheer and I can yell and I can scream for my team, my team. I mean, we talk about our teams like that too, my team. I, I, I never, I mean, look at me. Do I look like I ever play college football? No. I, again, with the laughter, come on. Uh, <laughs> I, no, but but I refer to it as my team. I didn't go to the University of Alabama. I've never actually been to the University of Alabama. I, I just watch the University of Alabama. It's not my team. But, but we find ourselves glorying in these incredibly temporary things, whether it's our 401k that we've saved up and had enough for retirement, or whether it's our kids and their accomplishments, or whether it's the last thing that we did that we're really proud of, that everybody ooed and awed over. But at the end of it all, Jesus is like, stop finding your glory in this terrestrial stuff that's down here in the dirt when there is an eternity that is going to be in front of us because everybody is going to be raised to life or to condemnation. And, and so there is this resurrection power that will redeem glory for you, at what it is that you're supposed to revel in, what is it that you're supposed to adore and love and be consumed by is not this the stuff of the earth, but it's the stuff of eternity. But then he also gives another redeeming kind of quality to his glory, and that is the divine witnesses to Jesus. And there from verse 33 down to verse 39, he actually gives four different divine witnesses. He talks about John the Baptist in verses 33, 34, and 35. He talks about his own works that he accomplishes by the power of God in verse 36. He talks about the witness of God the Father there in verses 37 and 38, and then even the words of Scripture there in verse 39. Verse 39 is particularly stinging. He says, you pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. He said, all right, so let's start back up here at John the Baptist. The, the one who, who is the last of the prophets, he's been testifying about me. There in verse 36, all of the works that I have accomplished, these have been given to me by the Father. He said there in verse 30, I can't do anything on my own. I only act according to the will of the one who sent me. I've done these works. They testify about me. The Father himself, he testifies about me. You haven't seen him. You're not willing to hear his voice. You don't, you've not seen his form, but you have his word, and you pour over the Scriptures. You study them. You dig into them. You try to understand them. And yet you don't see the truth that they are about me, says Jesus. There in verse 40, he says, you, you're not willing to come to me so that you can have life. There's this resurrection power. There's these witnesses about who Jesus is. That it, it, It's all pointing to this one place in history, this one linchpin moment about the life of Jesus. That's one of the many reasons why today, uh, after a time of prayer, after I, I talk about this passage for a little bit, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. 
Because this is the linchpin moment of history, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is the giving of His body and His blood. Everything points as a, as a witness to Him. And we have these four divine witnesses, John, the last of all the prophets of, under the Old Covenant, who declares, there's Jesus, He's the Lamb of God, He takes away the sin of the world. The, the very works that Jesus does, the one that they, they want to condemn him for of raising up a paralyzed man is something that actually points to, the, to the, the glorious power that he is the Savior. And yet they don't like it because it doesn't fit into their mold. The very, the very Father that's in heaven gives witness that this is Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, the voice rings out from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am very well pleased. And even the words of Scripture. Think about the, the multitude of people who pour and pour over the Scriptures and yet constantly, constantly miss grace. They miss the gospel. They miss the nature of Jesus. They're looking for a moral guideline. Will this book just help me to be a better person so I'm not so terrible to all of my neighbors? Uh, can I just go through a, a, a deistic kind of moral therapeutic kind of process where I can just be nicer, better? And, and this is one of the, the things that we have to guard against in, in, in our lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our walk with God, that we don't just use this book as just a moral guideline, but rather that we see it as that it is the unfolding of who God is. It is His self-revelation to us, and that is constantly pointing toward Jesus. That from the very beginning to the very end, this book is about Jesus that, that what we learn is that Jesus is busy in creation with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that it is in the garden with Adam and Eve, and they sin. And the Father says, and God says to Adam and Eve that you're going to have a seed, you're going to have a lineage, and the, the enemy is going to bruise the heel of your seed, but your seed is going to crush his head. This is a pointing all the way thousands of years later to the life of Jesus, that, that he would be bruised, but that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. And all through the Old Testament, we see these allusions and these metaphors and these prophecies and all of these things pointing toward the Savior who is going to arrive and how Jesus fulfills it all. And then through the rest of the New Testament, how the, the early church is constantly pointing toward Jesus. And Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian and pastor, when he was talking about the law, because we're going to see in a moment how it is that that, uh, that they wanted to rely on Moses. They wanted to rely on the law. Charles Spurgeon said, the law is for the self-righteous to humble their pride. The gospel is for the lost to remove their despair. Right? This is what the Scripture does for us. It humbles us in our pride of self-righteousness and gives us hope in our despair that there could be hope through Jesus. He displays and talks about this resurrection power. He uh, lays out for us that there are these divine witnesses. And thirdly, he reminds us that there is this eternal need, eternal need. At the very first verse that I read, verse 24, he says, "'Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life.'" But then there at the end of this passage, verses 38 down through the end of the chapter, he lays out this need that we have, that we would have life. And, and, and then he says, but I am not going to accept glory from, from the earth. I don't, Jesus, I, I, he, Jesus doesn't need the glory from the earth. He, he has glory inherent 
in himself and with the Father. He says, and there in verse 45, he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom you have set your hope. You have set all of your hope in fulfilling this law. You've set all of your hope in having a pristine moral character that is somehow you think is going to make you right in, in the sight of the eternal and living God. But you can't properly interpret the Scripture. He says there in verse 42 and 43, you don't even have a love for God within you. you in, there in verse 44, he says you don't honor God. He says there, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another? but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God because you're not going to avoid judgment. And he leaves them hanging with this like worst of all rhetorical questions that any of us could receive there in verse 47. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? He said, if you're not willing to believe what Moses actually wrote because you've so misinterpreted it, how are you going to believe me? And we have to hang with that with that question as well. Are are we going to believe Jesus? Are we going to seek glory from Him? There are all sorts of things in this life that can make you temporarily happy, that can possibly, you know, kind of be a a balm and, and a soothing kind of action in your life to bring you some sense of satisfaction in the moment. But the question is, is any of it going to last? Is any of it eternal? When I was in Brazil last week, uh, one of the cities that I visited was Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, and we have this picture in our mind of Rio, like it's this paradise, it's beautiful, which, you know, when you're down on, you know, Copacabana Beach, yeah, it's, it's awesome, it's beautiful, you know, all, everybody's out playing beach volleyball, and, you know, it's beautiful restaurants and beautiful homes and everything, but all you got to do is go two blocks in, and it's a, it's a war zone. Uh, and, and you go up into what they refer to as the favelas, which are all of these houses that have built, built on top of each other, on top of each other, on top of each other, up the mountain. And, and that's where basically just the drug lords run everything. And, and, and Jogo, my translator, and I visited a lot. Uh, he, he translated for me throughout most of the trip. And he had done ministry in the favelas. And he said, actually, if you are a resident there, he said, it's actually pretty peaceful. You know, because the drug lords, uh, they run everything. You know, they, they are like, you know, uh, beneficent dictators where, you know, they, they provide for the, the little widow ladies and they make sure that all the kids are home. Uh, they, they make sure that the schools are operating in the favelas. What they don't want is they just don't want the cops there. He said, because I've been up there when the cops have been there. And he said, that's when the grenade launchers come out. And, and, and he said, I, I've been in a church where there is a hail of gunfire outside because the cops had shown up. Because there are people living in, in absolute, just tragic poverty within sight distance of one of the most beautiful, pristine beaches you're ever going to see, and they have found their comfort in this life by a drug lord making sure that their, their neighborhood stayed peaceful. I mean, this... This is a sign and a symbol of the tragedy of the human heart. Now, you and I, you you don't live in a favela. Maybe you don't have a drug lord that's protecting your neighborhood. But think about the things that we do trust in that would give us hope and peace. 
I mean, we trust in our money. We trust in sunsets. We trust that there's a person that we're married to or dating or that, uh, or, or that we've given birth to, that it's one of our kids, that they're going to give us satisfaction in life. And all of these things are going to fail us. All of these people are going to fail us. And Jesus is saying, you've trusted in the wrong stuff. I've got resurrection power, there are divine witnesses about me, and you, as human beings, we all have this eternal need. John Piper, a modern pastor and theologian, said about our own satisfaction, where are we going to find it? He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Will we find our satisfaction in God so that we can experience this divine glory? So I want to I end with just pointing out one last phrase. He says to these guys that are completely backwards in their understanding about what is most important in the world, he says about John the Baptist, a guy that they really didn't know what to do with, crazy prophet running around, wearing burlap, living out in the wilderness, coming around saying that this guy from Nazareth was the Savior. He says there in verse 35, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, there's a lot that could be said about the second half of that phrase. You were only willing to rejoice in him for a while in his light, about their attitude toward him. But I want you to put yourself in this mode for a second about are you a John the Baptist? You know, we, we have this opportunity as Christians, those of us that are in the room, lots of us in this room, Christians, that we have put our faith in the right thing. We've trusted properly in Jesus for our salvation. And Jesus was able to say about John the Baptist, he was, look, I mean, think about this. He was a burning and shining lamp. You are burning and shining about something. You are displaying glory of something. You are putting on as an example something that everybody else needs to trust in. Your life is a testimony about something. Is it a burning and shining lamp about Jesus? Or is it a burning and shining lamp about you? that you need everybody to feel the gravitational pull toward you because you're the center of the universe? Or is it a burning and shining lamp about how great your company is or about how great your hobby is or about how great something else is? I mean, think about what is it that consumes your mind and your thinking and your passions? What is it that consumes your conversations with other people? Are you a burning and shining lamp about the resurrection power of Christ, about the divine witness of who Jesus is, about the eternal need that everybody has of Jesus? Are we a burning and shining lamp like John was? And that's our opportunity because we face a population in the world of seven and a half billion where if we're really generous, two billion people are Christians. We face a population in Manatee County where if we're really, really generous, maybe, maybe 40% are Christians. I would probably lower it down to about 
maybe even 20. And are we a burning and shining lamp that Jesus is the necessary peace, the one that is the answer, the whole of all we need? Or do we get wrapped up in all the other stuff and accoutrements of life? As we take a moment to pray, I want you to find yourself in answering that question. What is it that I am burning and shining about? Let's pray together. Father, I want to ask that you would help my friends that are here for worship today to absolutely positively know who you are and what it is that you've done for us. Now, just still with an attitude of prayer, heads bowed, eyes closed. If you find yourself in a position today where you're not a believer yet, but you, you're coming to the realization that this Jesus He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a magic man, not just a nice guy. He's the one that everybody was waiting on to be the sacrifice for our sin. And you want to put your faith in him today. Let me just ask you to pray a prayer like this. Just uh, just say to the Father in heaven, Father, I know that you love me and and I know I'm a sinner. And I want the forgiveness that can be found in Jesus. I want to submit to him as the Lord of everything. I believe that that Jesus is your son. He's risen from the dead. You don't have to pray those words just like that. There's a cry of your heart to God that, that Christ is Lord and that he's risen from the dead. He's the son of God. Now, for those of us that are believers, let's pray together like this. Father, we we know that Jesus is your son. We have trusted in him for our salvation. And we trust that what he has said is, is true about himself and about us and about who you are. And so God, we want to be that burning light in this world, not just a little flickering candle, but Lord, that you would set us our lives ablaze with your glory, that we would find our greatest satisfaction in you not in our successes or our attainments, not in what it is that we store up here on the earth. Father, that we're not going to glory in whatever the latest entertainment buzz was or what our sports team did. Father, we're going to find our glory in you because you are what is most important in all of creation and in all of eternity. Lord, we we don't want to find glory in ourselves or in what people say about us. Lord, we just want to point everyone toward who you are. And we want to be like John, a signpost pointing toward the heavens, a a person who points toward Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We want to be like John who burned and blazed for you. So Lord, whatever it is that has stood in the way, we want to live a life of repentance where we lay it down so that you can use us in whatever powerful way you want to, whatever quiet way you want to, when in 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 obscurity or for the whole world to see. Father, help us to live this kind of way with our families, with our kids, with our spouses, with our friends, with our neighbors. Lord, the community that needs you. And wherever it is that you call us to burn brightly for you, we will go. We thank you that you're good and that your mercy endures forever. In Christ's name we pray.